you're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The County of Hawaii is working to address public safety concerns on Waipio Valley's only and notoriously steep road. The decision to close the road last spring touched off a heated community discussion about who should have access to the valley. Hawaii County Mayor Mitch Roth amended his original emergency proclamation to allow Hawaii Island residents traveling in four-wheel drive vehicles as well as county-sanctioned tours back into the valley. This was a win for the citizen group Malama Ike Kai Owaipio, who sued the county to have access to the valley restored for all residents. But supporters of a second group, Protect Waipio Valley, are asking visitors and residents alike to hold off while the road is accessed and the valley's natural resources rest. The conversation Savannah Harriman Pote spoke with Mayor Roth this morning about balancing these different community interests as well as the county's timeline for road repairs. A couple of years ago, the um, Department of Public Works asked for a geotechnical survey after we had some uh, landslides and stuff like that on the road. So they did the, the survey. It came back that there are some safety issues, and we are now looking into those safety issues and determining how to um, make the road safe. It will be on October 26th uh, where Hart Krauser will come out and talk about their findings and the recommendations on how to um, best fix the road. And is there anything about that timeline for improvements that you know now that you'd be able to share? You know, I, I don't want to overpromise and, and underdeliver, or, or, you know, uh, we, we do know that they've recommended fixing the road in three phases. Um, my direction to Public Works is we want to get this done as quickly as possible. We want to make the road as you know safe to the community uh, as soon as we can, and so um, they are working on recommendations. Um, when when we first got the, the survey, you know everybody wants to be their own engineer. I want to be an engineer, and I asked, well, why don't we just you know put like um, some cage uh, you know above so we prevent like the rock slide? And they said, well, that may actually make it more more dangerous so they had to do the studies and check to see what would be the safest way and so i think they found three different places in the road where there's some issues some of it is in the road itself some of it is on the hill above um and you know so we're looking at how we can make it safe um to traverse in you know an expedited manner and any any clues as to what an expedited manner might mean, optimistically? Um, I I'm hoping to hear that back from uh, from Public Works and Hart Krauser. I know that they're coming on the 26th to do their presentation for the community and for us as well. The road was closed in response to a public safety concern, but it's yes. touched off a heated discussion within the community about access to the valley. Mm-hmm. What do you identify as the main concerns of residents on the issue of access to YPO? You know, I, the, there's a couple of different groups, and I'm going to talk from from their perspectives. From what I understand, and we've been we've been having meetings with the community. Um, there's a couple of things that are, are there. The community feels that you know the valley is primarily privately owned, and so when you go down to the valley today. I know the residents have put up a gate on private property that prevents people from driving out to the ocean. You know, according to the residents, there's very little places to park. Actually, there's no place to park, according to them, that is public property down there. We are looking at the road as a safety issue. They're looking at the road as a kind of like a driveway into their homes. And so the surfers look at this as a um, ocean access and uh, you know a way to get down to the ocean we're trying not to get involved in in the battle between the surfers or the residents um, and just saying look this, what we're working on right now is you know a safety issue on the road however it brings up a much bigger issue and that is what what do we do for the future of the valley what, what kind of plans do we do we make you know one of the things that we've seen during this last seven months is that you know the valley according to the residents has started to come back to life the sea life the um, 
a coolie, like they're seeing a coolie balls out in the ocean. They're seeing things that they haven't seen in, in many years, it's, which brings that whole topic of Vahipana, a you know, sacred place, and how do we protect our sacred places in the future? You know, the point that I'm making to the community is, look, we're going to fix the road. But once we fix the road, there's still going to be this tension unless we start meeting together, having these conversations to figure out where we go in the future. And so tonight, really what the purpose is, is to talk to them about where we are now, to, you know, talk about our role of fixing the road, but to get them as a community, whether they're surfers or they're residents or they're farmers down in the valley, to start having these conversations so together we can come up with a, a management plan. You know, one of the issues that people talk about is tourism. And in talking to our you know, local tourism um, people, um, they, they haven't been advertising the valley as a destination. They, they uh, publicize the lookout as the destination where we want our visitors to go. County-sanctioned tour companies are allowed into the valley right now, though, based on the recent amendment to your original emergency proclamation. Is so that correct? What, correct. What, well, yes and no. What we did is we, we said, look, um, we, we really don't want anybody going down there, but if it's going to be a tourism, a tourist company, um, tourism company that's going down there, we want people who are going down there that have Kuleana in that valley. And so we're not giving permits to everybody to go down that road. Generally, we're looking for companies that have permission from, you know, people who are down in the valley. If you're going to be having a tourism company that's going down there, we don't want you going across everybody's property, but only the properties that people are inviting you to come to. Hmm. And Mayor, last question. Mm-hmm. Residents on both sides of this issue, those who feel the valley needs the opportunity to rest and those who feel they have a right to public access, they do support more engagement and education about Waipio Valley, particularly mm-hmm. at the lookout. What is the county considering in terms of expanding that initiative in lines with what we've seen elsewhere on the archipelago for education initiatives when people are entering sensitive areas? You know, I, I think we've already started that with our, our DMAP plans, um, but, you know, in particular with the Valley, we are, you know, we've had some meetings and we're going to continue to have more meetings as we go forward because uh, this is an important, you know, it's, it's an important uh, topic. It's an important issue. You know, one is for Waipio Valley and for the town of Honaka, but it's an important issue for our whole island um, and it gives us a roadmap to start working on making sure that we're protecting our Vahipana, but also making sure that there's access to places where you know we, we want people to go. We've been hearing from Hawaii County Mayor Mitch Roth. He spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote this morning on issues surrounding access to Waipio Valley. There will be a community meeting for those interested tonight at 5.30 at the Honoka'a Gym. A parent's pain. We get a personal story from a father whose son played professional football with a brain injury. We hear about not just one concussion, but five. Playing and living the dream, but at what price? This morning we talked to Dr. Eflin Amerson, a neuropsychologist whose son David was born in Hawaii. He grew up on the mainland. In 2013, David followed his dream to play pro football. He played for the Oakland Raiders, the Kansas City Chiefs, and the Arizona Cardinals, and just recently retired from the sport. But his father has been keenly aware of the headlines about the two concussions that Miami Dolphins quarterback Tua Tabangaloa recently suffered. Here's Emerson recalling one of his son's early head injuries. He went into the NFL in 2013, initially drafted by the Redskins, well, previously named Redskins, they're the commanders now. 
and he played for them pretty much, uh, I think, about two years before he was released to the Oakland Raiders. Now, he did sustain, I think, two concussions while he was with the Redskins. One of them I remembered vividly in the uh, Dallas game. We were in Dallas, and he actually got hit in the side hole of his helmet uh, from another player. He was a rookie at the time, and another rookie just uh, uh, on the kickoff came in and hit him uh, in the side of his head, and so he just melted. Um, I just saw him just disappear. And so I went down to the locker room and uh, remember that scene, and he wasn't uh, really um, was confused why I was there. So that was the first time that I, I really saw the impact of concussions with him. Now, you know, I'm a retired uh, Navy neuropsychologist, so I dealt with concussions in Afghanistan. So I know the impact of those from sports and, and also from trauma. So I, I knew that he sustained a pretty bad concussion at that time. And there were other about five other events that occurred throughout his career. And uh, towards the latter end of his career, I, I, I could see his uh, play uh, had really started to decline, meaning that he didn't run as fast as he used to and he wasn't responsive as, as he used to. And, and he kind of um, had um, voiced that. But uh, like most of these athletes in the NFL, they spend uh, the majority of their later adolescence and into adulthood just being fine-tuned athletes. and. They want to play. So I think at the beginning of COVID, he was looking at going go out with the 49ers for a training. But I think because of COVID hit, that he got stuck in New York and, and he eventually uh, just retired from playing. Well, what were you thinking this past week as you saw the news about Tua? When I saw Tua, I saw the hit and then I saw him um, try to stand up and, and walk. Then I assumed that he was concussed based on my experience. But I knew that feeling because I know his parents are in attendance in that game. And I, I knew uh, probably they were feeling kind of helpless because, um, you know, seeing that and based on my training, watching my son take a hit like that, most time people don't see the hit and they don't recognize it. But I've seen my son get up and kind of stagger. So it was very familiar to me to, to say that there's an issue here and this individual should probably leave the game and not return. And yet we saw him go back in for a second game. Yeah, you know, that, that was concerning to me. And, you know, and I'm, I'm not sure of, what the, of this whole evaluation, but for what I know, there is something called a second impact syndrome. And you have to be careful that when you have an initial concussion and then you have before your body can reconstitute, and you take another hit, that could prove to be fatal or, or, you know, very dangerous that there are long-term effects. And that's something that uh, really that high schools have picked up on, that once you take that hit and you're out of game, you take the helmet and cannot go back in because we've lost a lot of athletes, especially um, in adolescence high school. They've taken a hit, gone back in, taken a second hit, and, and they didn't survive. And so just seeing him back out there was surprised uh, maybe and I'm thinking well they said he cleared the protocol but I was really surprised to see him back out there uh, that soon. Initially I think the reports were saying oh it was a, a back injury and then they have since I think fired you know someone there on the team that cleared him but we have also seen stories of, I think his brother was very concerned and wanted to you know be with him and, and was reluctant to play I think this weekend. So lots of emotions swirling you know and this is your yeah. line of work and and you've been there you know you know and, and you, you know you fear for your child but those football dreams die hard they do they do i remember having the conversation with my son when he was in college and i would say hey be sure to keep your head out of the head and you know use your shoulder pads and he would tell me don't tell me that I don't want to think about that while I'm out there. And I said, I know, but you, you got to use your shoulder pads. Keep your head out of the head. So the athletes are aware. And one of the things I, that I, I have recognized that the NFL has done, but you'll see them tackle around the legs and they roll. It's called an alligator roll. And it's a, a much safer tackle um, going to the legs, grabbing and rolling over versus then clashing heads. And sometimes I think it happens uh, inadvertently. They're trying to get in and ahead as it comes in there. But, you know, these players are 
super athletes. And if you can't perform, if you miss a tackle, or if you miss an assignment, they have a saying, the next man up. Um, they have someone waiting in, in the in the wings, wait, waiting to take your position. So they're trying at an extremely high level to, to be perf- perfected. One of the things that people don't see and don't recognize is the impact that the linemen take because the linemen clash consistently. And a lot of times these linemen stagger back to the bench and we don't know that they've hit their heads, but they're they're banging for, you know, every time. And they more than likely uh, may be sustaining these sub-concussive blows and we just don't recognize them. But these are the individuals that we read about in the books post-career that have uh, a lot of severe injuries because they are constantly hitting and their heads are constantly uh, clashing to one another. But we don't see it because we don't really focus on that area and it's hard to, to see what's, what is occurring but they're the ones that are really taking blows. Now, my son was a, a cornerback. You can tell because you're going one-on-one, you're running up and tackling, so you can see those pretty clearly. But these individuals that are on the line, they're the ones that are taking a lot of blows that is a cause for a lot of concern. You know, you and I were at an event this weekend uh, talking about brain injuries, and uh, the head of the medical school, uh, Dean Jarris Hedges, happened to share after uh, that event that when he was in high school, he played football and he suffered a blow to the head. He had his helmet on, but he lost his memory for a month, you know, and that was in high school. I mean, he turned out okay, you know, (laughs) head of the medical school. But, you know, uh, you just worry for our young people, you know, and I worry about your son. I don't know how he's doing with his retirement. How's he adjusting with that? He's doing well. And I think one of the things that he recognized I better uh, get out while I can and that I'm not, you know, severely impaired. So a lot of these injuries are what we call mild concussions, and that can be a misnomer. But a mild concussion, the recovery time, especially from a sports injury, usually occurs in one to three weeks, and so they can, can get back out there. The NFL usually turns them around in just about seven days, but they're they're following those guidelines of of a mild concussion. But when you have individuals that have several mild concussions, it doesn't take much for them to be uh, concussed. I evaluated an individual many years ago, Marine, who had been concussed several times, but he's had so many concussions that when he shoots his rifle, he was just about being concussed again from the blowback of the rifle. Because you have one, now you can bump into a door after you've had seven or eight, and you can, you know, have a concussion. So um, there's a a long-term effect that can occur from accumulative uh, concussions. What do you hope will come out of this discussion since the spotlight has been thrown on on, uh, football and Tua and and what he's been through? You know, I think the sense of urgency of really monitoring the players, and and the NFL has done that. They have given it a sense of urgency, and they are concerned with their players that want to keep them healthy. But I think this this raises the spotlight that any time that the individual is concussed or we think he's concussed or we see symptoms and signs of a concussion, that we want to err on the side of safety. He may very well have went out there and passed the concussion protocol, but they still have to look at beyond the concussion protocol. The sense of urgency should be, you know, looking at the protocols again. Are we doing everything that we can? And I, and I think the NFL has announced that, mm-hmm. that they are revising some things to, to monitor this. Even here in, in our islands, we want to be a little bit more concerned about our young players out there in the Pop Warner and these uh, little league leagues that are out here playing football. I've attended some games and seen individuals that may look like they've been stunned and sh- should have come out, but they've been back out there. So uh, this is where it starts. Even in the Pop Warner and the little leagues, we have to have a sense of urgency of making sure that our players are safe. So we saw this on tour nationally, but here locally, we can be uh, have that same sense of urgency of looking at our players and making sure if they look like they took a hard blow, it's okay to take them out, take their helmet off, get them checked out, and don't let them go back in the game because this is where it starts. That was Dr. Uh, Eflin Emerson, a neuropsychologist here in Honolulu, 
whose son had a nearly decade-long career as an NFL player. Dr. Emerson was sharing his professional and personal experience with concussions. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The immersive exhibition, Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, uses plant and botanical materials to explore the human connection to the natural world. Now on view, honolulumuseum.org. Thanks to you, HPR is thriving. With our growing local news team and our hosts' curated selections, we bring you the most information and music that's essential to your day. We look forward to bringing you local programming and events in months to come. All of this is possible because of your financial support. $10 a month ensures your essential listening to HPR is here to stay. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at costcohawaii.com. This is the scary season, and frogs are coming back to haunt Honolulu's rail system, and the train isn't even fully operational. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marcel Henri on the line. Good morning. Morning, Catherine. Good to be here. Yes, so we should say these aren't real frogs. These are something on the tracks that they had a problem with earlier, but I thought Hart said they fixed it. So what's the deal? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Hart did say that they had fixed it and they had moved on. Frogs, just to bring uh, listeners up to speed, that they're not the animals. That is what in the rail industry they call these uh, track crossings, where basically these points where the, the tracks cross uh, over each other. And uh, there's been some controversy. There's been a whole saga with these frog points for Honolulu Rail and the future system. We did a special report last summer that drew largely from a project whistleblower who raised uh, continuing concerns with the type of frog that Hart and the city are using. It's called a flange-bearing frog, not to get too far into the weeds or too technical. Uh, but basically, Hart and the city are relying heavily on this special type of frog, and typically rail transit systems use another type of frog and only use the one that our system is going to have everywhere. They only use it in limited areas. That's kind of the, the basic uh, concern here. They're pointing to uh, maintenance problems, potential maintenance problems and nightmares and headaches in the future, and even a very slim chance after many years of service, it could it could lead to, you know, they're, they're throwing out the D word, the, the, the derailment, but only very slim uh, probability. Anyways, this came out over the summer. Hart basically roundly dismissed this as, you know, the opinions of one individual and said it was very unfounded. What what we're reporting on today is there's a newly released memo that comes within uh, comes from a, a different city agency, the D Department of Transportation Services, which is taking over control of operations and maintenance of the rail system. And this memo shows that uh, there are several subject matter experts that are responsible for the, the tracks here and are coming at these tracks from, from different angles from, you know, their jobs. And they all basically have the same concerns as this whistleblower we talked to, a guy named Dave Walker, really almost to the letter. These are people from Hitachi, uh, DTS, Department of Transportation Services, and uh, Dave himself. And so this basically shows, you know, that, that this could be a, a bigger bigger problem uh, than what Hart has kind of dismissed it as. And the Hart board will be discussing this memo at its meeting on Thursday. Okay, so another opportunity to turn the stone over again to figure out, did we do the right thing? Should we have heeded this warning? I mean, I know they decided to change the, the wheels on the trains to deal with uh, some of the concerns about, you know, they didn't have a lot of wiggle room, I think, was, was the, the issue back then. Yeah, that's literally and figuratively what it is. The track tolerances uh, are so narrow based on kind of their solution 
that they use, which involved replacing the wheels um, in order to keep the frogs and not have to replace them. Uh, Dave, and what you're now hearing out of uh, DTS and other places, in fact, Hitachi said it, you know, this, the, replacing the wheels is, quote, the, the smartest thing I've heard since I got on island, is what one Hitachi manager said. You know, you know they're saying you should have replaced these uh, back in the day with, with more standard uh, uh, frogs, and that would save a lot of headaches going forward in the years to come. Okay, well, we'll see where this discussion takes us. But thanks so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Henri with today's Reality Check. Check out his stories on this issue. Visit civilbeat.org. New York prosecutors are taking more time to review potential evidence against the man charged with stabbing author Salman Rushdie this past August. The attack has also lit a fire under many artists and free expression advocates. Here in Hawaii, members of our literary community are coming together for a rally on the steps of the Hawaii State Library. It's to stand in solidarity with Rushdie and in favor of free expression in the arts. Acclaimed novelist and Maui resident Alexander Maxik is organizing the event. Local authors will read selections from Rushdie's books and writings. The conversation, Russell Subiono got the chance to talk to Maxik about his reaction to the attack and the importance of free expression. As an author yourself, what were your thoughts when you first learned about the attack on Salman Rushdie? I was, I was outraged and furious. I have to admit I was also frightened. And I felt I'm not by nature an activist. I'm much more comfortable at home alone behind a, a computer screen, but or rather in front of a computer screen. But there's something about what what happened here provoked in me um, feelings that I, I haven't had felt in a, in a long time. When this happened, it kind of brought to mind some other events that kind of mirror what happened to Rushdie earlier this year. We saw Will Smith slap Chris Rock at the Oscars. We saw a guy get up on stage at a Dave Chappelle show and attack him. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like free uh, expression is under attack more now than it has been in recent years? Um, that is my sense. I don't know for certain if that's, if that's in fact the case, but there's certainly an atmosphere that I, I would describe as, as an atmosphere of orthodoxy that concerns me greatly. And, you know, whatever we are dealing with in this country pales in comparison to what what people are dealing with in other countries. And for the most part, I have always felt free, and I think most writers have always felt free to write what they want to write. Whether or not that is always going to be the case, I'm not sure at this point. You know, you talk about the freedom of expression, you know, the rise in book banning, for example, in this country is really terrifying. Especially when you think about other times in history where book banning was a thing, you flash back to World War II, you flash back to the Nazis and how they treated literature. It does start to make you a little afraid of of where society might be heading. And speaking of banning books, in fall 2021, the American Library Association said they received 330 reports of book challenges, a rate it called unprecedented and also underreported because they estimate between 82 and 97 percent of challenges are not reported. What are your thoughts on why this idea of banning books has gotten traction lately? I think my, my, my sense is that in times like this, when the world feels increasingly unstable, when we are increasingly driven to factions where we can isolate ourselves inside of our little silos of politics, I think fear drives orthodoxy. Fear drives conservatism. And I think it is a sense that the future is very unsure. And out of that comes a desperate need for control. And we become more fearful of the other and become more and more identified by, by our politics. And we isolate ourselves and surround ourselves with people who share our politics. And as a result, we reject anything that presents itself as other. 
it seems really strange to me that some people's mindsets would evolve that way when the country was founded with free speech written into the Constitution. It seems like we should be getting better at it rather than reverting back to this idea of controlling what people say or what people read. I, I agree with you. But again, I think the desire to control is too seductive. And I also think that there's currency there. I mean, there is certainly it is politically expedient to claim that X group is abhorrent and Y group is righteous. And you see that, I mean, particularly in the world of politics right now, mm -hmm. it, is, it is terrifying. But there's, there's a great deal of power to be gained from these simplistic policies. When we talk about free expression, free expression is not just the ability or freedom to express your own views, but also the ability to access the views, ideas, and literature of others. When we think about free expression, why does free expression matter? How does it impact, how does it benefit our communities and society as a whole? I can really only tell you what it feels like to be a writer. I was drawn to writing, and every artist I know was drawn to his or her work originally for the freedom, the feeling that anything is possible. We should only be limited by our imaginations. I think the more open that a society we have, the more exposed we are to other points of view, the better off we are. And I really think it is, it is as simple as that. The reason we are gathering on the steps of the, of the library is simply to say that, that we are in favor of free expression. We are in favor of all points of view and all forms of art, regardless of political bent and the efforts to oppress, to obscure, to silence, ultimately contribute to a dark and closed and ugly society. And that has been borne out all throughout history. And we have a responsibility, I think, to stand up and reject any effort to shut down artists of all kinds, all stripes. And I should say that includes, you know, I mean, you know, what we're talking about, Salman Rushdie, who obviously yeah. was attacked for simply having written a novel. But librarians, teachers, editors, publishers, anyone who is fighting for the freedom to write, read, promote books has skin in this game. And I think it's essential for all of us, regardless of our politics, to be unified on this fundamental point. Yeah. Yeah. I think it extends out beyond authors as well. I think musicians, I think comedians, I Certainly. think artists of all kinds of media have skin in the game as well. I was just absolutely. I, I was just reminded of something that I read in Ender's Game, where it says, "In the moment where I truly understand my enemy, understand him well enough to defeat him, then in that very moment, I also love him." And I feel yeah. like when we are able to learn about each other, you know, when we're able to express freely and we're able to learn about each other, the less the less walls there will be between us and the less animosity there'll be between us because we'll understand that other person. And so it seems to me Certainly. that free expression is, if it's not the best route, it's certainly one of the biggest routes to being more unified as, as people instead of building walls. I agree with you. And, and I think, again, I, I keep coming back to the same thought that you know, regardless of our politics, it just seems like this subject is one that we should fight very hard to agree upon. It is foundational to the sort of most ideal version of this country and frankly of any country. The rally that you're organizing is at the Hawaii State Library on Oahu. What time does it start? 1 p.m. 1 p.m. On October 8th. Okay. And by gathering the artists and doing readings of Salman Rushdie's works at this rally, how do you hope that will impact those in attendance and the public in general? My hope is to see a group of writers, Hawaii writers, standing before them. Just the fact that they're there, they're taking the time, and frankly, that they are taking the risk to stand there and read from Rushdie's work. I hope that other writers 
in the audience, that members of the public who care deeply about writing, about art in general, will see that there are people in the world who care deeply about freedom of expression and that what they read in the news every day, this increasingly fractured world, is not represented by this community of writers. And it's not lost on me that we're, that we're doing this event in a place where for decades people were not allowed to express themselves freely or even speak their own language. So I, I wanted to mention that I'm very happy that one of our speakers will be Keao Ni Smith, who will translate and read Rushdie's work in Olelo, Hawaii, which I think is wonderful on all sorts of levels. You know, sometimes anger is the best motivator, so it's very cool to hear yeah, that you're doing absolutely. something yeah, very creative with it. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with our audience? I just would be so grateful if as many of your listeners would turn out. The event will last just about an hour. We have some wonderful writers, including Don Wallace and, and Cowie Hart Hemmings. And I think it'll be a, an interesting and, and exciting event. And everyone's presence there would be really appreciated. Thank you so much for your time, Alexander. Thank you for yours. That was Maui resident and book author Alexander Maxik talking with HBR's Russell Subiono about a free expression rally that is set for this Saturday, October 8th. The event starts at 1 p.m. on the steps of the Hawaii Public Library main branch in downtown Honolulu. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, and it's Manu Minute time. We've got a real cool, cool, cool bird coming up, thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the zebra dove. If you've ever sat down at an outdoor park bench or table for a snack anywhere across Hawaii, You've probably noticed zebra doves darting around on the ground looking for crumbs of food. Zebra doves are about 8 inches in length, but only weigh about 2 ounces. These little doves are brownish gray on their backs and have fine black and white bars on the sides of their breast that look a little bit like zebra stripes. If you look real close, you'll notice that the center part of their breast is a pretty pinkish brown color. Zebra doves are native to Southeast Asia and were first introduced to Hawaii in the 1920s. Since then, they've become widespread in the main Hawaiian islands and are commonly found in cities, towns, and countrysides where they forage mainly on small seeds and fruits. Their soft, pleasant cooing calls are a very common part of our soundscape. Zebra dove cooing competitions have become very popular in Thailand and other Southeast Asian countries, where the doves are judged by the melody, range, and loudness of their coos. The best cooing doves can bring their owners very large cash prizes. Because of this, breeding them has become big business, and the best cooing birds can sell for many thousands of dollars per pair. Here in Hawaii, our overlooked little zebra doves can draw attention to themselves during breeding season when the males follow the females around on the ground, incessantly bowing, cooing, and flaring their tail feathers in order to impress them. Because they're monogamous and generally mate for life, these displays must be very effective. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Waiakea Hawaiian Volcanic Water, committed to supporting nonprofits that help communities with safe water solutions, such as Pump Aid in Malawi, Africa. Waiakea.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll talk about how the pandemic reinforced how data is necessary to make sound decisions. We'll find out from Chaminade University how the application of data analytics is used to solve critical sustainability issues and promote sustainable development across the Pacific. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. character in the middle grade book section is Ivy Sano, a cheeky 11-year-old whose family has just moved into Fort Shafter housing. First-time author Zoe Tokushige pulled from personal experiences and family ties to Hawaii to write the middle school book about the Sano family by weaving in military family life and diving into dyslexia and what that means for the youngster who is learning to fit into a new school and community. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with Tokushige to get the backstory to Irisano, Prank Master General, New School Skirmish. Ivy is the oldest of three kids in a military family, and she has spent her whole life moving around. She's bad at making friends, bad at school, but what she's good at is pulling pranks, and she loves to make people laugh. When her family finally settles down in Hawaii, where her dad grew up, she has to face the prospect of the fact that she can't just ignore her teacher until they move and meet Mrs. Ashton, who is not willing to let her just give off on school anymore, actually tries to engage her. And the way she tries to engage her is by joining in on Irie's cranks. And Ari's punky fun self really comes through from the get-go. You start off chapter one right away, bringing us into the setting. The phone in the new house is ringing. Mom's busy taking care of baby sister. And so Idy picks up the phone and says, yellow. The adult on the other end doesn't get it. Yellow. She says again, orange, you glad you got me. <laughs> Where did that come from? I think initially in the original pitch, there was just the yellow question. And then I just, I like word puns. I don't know if I'm necessarily that good at coming up with them, but I do like enjoy hearing them from other people. I just sat there and I was like, how can I use other colors as words? <laughs> and then I wrote out a few different ones and then managed to form a conversation out of it. <laughs> well, I know that the reader that you are shooting for is about 8 to 12 when you are using maybe perhaps bigger words or concepts, or even when you talk about, there were things like, you know, I.D. Sano's case file. And on this one, it says, the U.S. Army has a file at least 500 pages thick, an OMPF. Because at first, when I was reading it, I was like, okay, making note to self, I have to go Google this. What was really cool is that with your book, I don't really have to make a word list because you are kind of anticipating the reader's needs and you include definitions as footnotes. So in this case, OMPF stands for Official Military Personnel File. So if you were a military kid, you probably got it. For those of us who aren't, realizing <laughs> like you supplied the answer right there. I, I've always loved books that have like extra or like documents are part of the story or footnotes are part of the story. Like one of my favorite authors is Terry Pratchett and he uses footnotes all, usually as ways to tell jokes, but I saw them as an opportunity to inject both explanations for things without it feeling clunky within the narrative and also just a way for Heidi to give her perspective on stuff, especially when it comes to words. Cause even though she's dyslexic, I thought of her as someone who loves the way words sound and is, like, fascinated by words. And that was part of her character that I really had fun playing with, especially when it came to doing footnotes and, you know, spelling out pronunciations and that kind of thing. Your career actually has been in publishing. Mm -hmm. And how did that start? Were you always in love with words? Was writing something just, like, in your DNA you always knew you were going to do? I was actually kind of a slow reader to start with. I didn't really get into reading until I was probably halfway through first grade. And then I just fell in love with storytelling, especially. And I wanted to be a writer since I was about 10. You know, 
moved in and out of thinking that was going to be possible. And then after I graduated college, I decided that I wanted to try and get an MFA in creative writing, which is what I did at Emerson College in Boston. And after that, I took some of the experiences I'd had as internships in college and took that to becoming a production professional, which means I make the book. (laughs) So when the opportunity has risen now, your first book, how long did it take for you to write? The idea for the book actually originated with Danielle Clayton, who is another author, and she is the CEO of Cake Creative. Cake is a literary packaging company. They are really dedicated to works by people of color, and they are really strong in the young adult and middle grade areas, especially. Okay. So Cake was the literary packaging company. This idea started probably eight to 10 years ago when I was interning for them. She sent me the very initial pitch that they were working on for Ivy. And then two years ago, she sent me a text message asking if I remembered working on this pitch. And from there, it actually was a pretty quick process. I wrote the initial few chapters, and then it got bought at the end of of 2020. And I think the first draft was done within a few months. My birthday's in May, and I remember turning in a draft like two days before my birthday. (laughs) Oh, wow. So about a decade ago, Danielle Mm -hmm. gives you that initial pitch. Yeah, she was working on a few different projects at the time, and they had me do like a sensitivity read on the initial few chapters. Okay, but Irie didn't exist yet, did she? She did. Um, She's actually based on a student that Danielle had when she was a teacher. She's inspired by this little Korean girl she had who was like a huge prankster. And she thought it was so funny because the mom would always come and apologize and like bring her gifts. And she's like, no, it's fine. I think it's I think it's great. Mm, really interesting to know, because I've heard sometimes how like authors will say, like the character just had to come out of me. But mm-hmm. seeing on this one, you were kind of gifted, Ivy. I was. Yeah, I was. I felt very fortunate that she trusted me enough with this character. And it was really nice to be able to take the initial sketch of her character and fill out her life. It was so much fun. How much of what we we see from Ari, how much of you, I guess, the Hawaii in the book is from your family? Probably most of it. It's not directly things that I experienced. You know, I phoned up my cousins and my aunt who used to teach in public school in Hawaii and was asking them for you know, little tidbits, that kind of stuff. Uh, so pretty much all of it is pulled from real life. I think the, the major exception is living on a military base because that wasn't, that didn't happen to be the part of the military that my family was in. So that part was, is all, it's all made up. There were those, the nods to the fact that you have a connection to the state, to Hawaii, and just to have these aha moments, like story takes place at Fort Shafter. <laughs> For somebody from Hawaii, you know, some parts like the streets, like when she's like yeah. doing her bike ride. I wanted to know, do those streets exist? Because I've never been on base. Because you yeah. did a really good job of phonetically exposing a reader to Hawaiian. Mm-hmm. That was really important to me. I don't think I'm necessarily that great at pronouncing Hawaiian words, but I really wanted people to understand that it, it is a language and it is one that has its own conventions and trying to help people understand how to pronounce it correctly was part of that. But yeah, the roads that I describe are all real. I had like a map open of the base while I was writing that bit part. <laughs> but I just want to, you mentioned a few times, but I just want to highlight the illustrations. They are incredible. When I first got the sketches, I was just like, you have completely captured the spirit of this book. <laughs> And that would be your illustrator, Jennifer Nalchigar. Yes. And there's actually one of Irie's grandparents' farm that is based on a painting of my grandparents' Christmas tree farm. That is pretty accurate to what the view is like over in Kaneohe. Hmm. Part of it is based in reality, but then also there is a fiction like the elementary school. Where did you come up with that name? I was looking for interesting uh, people in history who had associations with the military. And Joe Takata was a Japanese baseball player who also, I believe he served in the 442nd. And he sounded like a really interesting guy regardless. And I decided to name the school after him. 
in this time now, as you're in the industry, are you seeing these stories resonating? Is it easier to tell these stories of people of color? I think so. When I was at the bookstore for my book launch last week, I was looking at the young adult section and I was just amazed by how diverse the offerings were compared to when I was a kid. And I mean, 15 years ago, like that's not, I feel like people now don't, or kids now don't realize how dramatic a shift it's been in the last 15 years, especially even in the last like five, 10 years, seeing the variety of stories that are getting told. There are still a lot of obstacles and a lot of, you know, issues in the industry that needs to be addressed. But I've been really amazed to see how far it's come despite that. And before we let you go, final question. What do you want your readers to take away from your book? I want kids to take away from it that there are many ways of expressing yourself and there are many ways of being smart, I guess. I don't know. Being smart, I think, implies a lot of a lot of things, but in this case, I mean, having difficulty with school doesn't mean that you're, you know, a hopeless case or that you're, you're stupid or anything like that. Like everyone has different needs in life. And I also hope people can see that you can find ways to relate to people, even if it doesn't seem like you guys have a lot in common. That was HPR's Lillian Song with Zoe Tokushige, who pulled from local family ties to write Ari Sando, Prankmaster General, New School Skirmish. It's a book that's out on bookshelves and available online now. There will be two more books in the series, published by Penguin Random House. we have to go now but up tomorrow we have water conservation on our mind we learn about rebates for low flow toilets for oahu residents it's the first time in about a decade and a half that they're being made available leave your feedback on our talk back line 808-792-8217 post your comments on facebook at the conversation hpr email works to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.